You're listening to Counter Moves, a Christian review of ideas shaping church and culture. On Counter Moves, we interview some of today's most incisive thinkers on the ideas and trends affecting Christian witness in a secular age. Our mission is summed up in the words of Carl F.H. Henry. If the church fails to apply the central truth of Christianity to social problems correctly, someone else will do so incorrectly. On today's episode, we'll be speaking with Jonathan Lehman about religious liberty, Baptist ecclesiology, and political theology. Jonathan is the editorial director for Nine Marks. He has written for a number of publications and is the author or editor of a number of books. Jonathan lives with his wife and four daughters in a suburb of Washington, D.C., and serves as an elder at Capitol Hill Baptist Church. Jonathan, if I have my details correct, you are getting ready to plant a church. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. Uh, still at Capitol Hill, have stepped down as an elder, though, and uh, me and 60 other members, 60 other members and I, are going to plant a church in our neighborhood, in the neighborhood where we live, in Chevrolet, just outside of the district on the Maryland side. Man, that is so exciting. So exciting. Uh, in addition to being an elder, he also lectures occasionally at Southeastern Seminary, uh, Southern Seminary, and Reformed Theological Seminary. And in my opinion, I find uh, Jonathan Lehman to be one of the most astute thinkers uh, in in confessional evangelical circles today. And I think his book, uh, Political Church in particular, is a real gift to the church as a work of political theology that I think makes a real contribution to the overall field and would recommend to all the listeners of Countermoves. So Jonathan, thank you first and foremost for being on Countermoves today. I really appreciate you joining us. Well, thanks, brother, but you're just advertising how little you've read. (laughs) Well, give me your definition of political theology. Yeah, thank you, Andrew. Uh, The short answer is that it's theological reflection on all things political, right? Theological reflection on all things political. Uh, Notice I didn't say on politics, just because if I said that, everybody's mind will immediately go to Congress, to courts, Mm -hmm. institutions of government, public square generally. That sort of thing, and as the, the, and some want to say that's what political theology is, but I think a better brand of political theology realizes that uh, politics goes beyond the institutions and activities of the public square. It pertains, in some sense, to all of life lived under God's rule, and how God's rule gives order to the entirety of our lives, our lives together with all humanity, and our lives together as God's chosen people in, in churches if we're Christians. And so, notice what I'm doing there, Andrew. I'm countering the way I think many American Christians have been trained to answer that question, Mm -hmm. starting in the Lockean tradition of saying politics begins when we leave the state of nature and step into the public square, step into that place where we consent and contract together to form a government. Mm -hmm. And some political theologians would maintain that. For my part, I would say it starts before that. It starts with the rule of God and covers our entire lives. And and so you would also say this is different than even kind of an Aristotelian understanding of politics as just being kind of the, the ordering of the overall polis, because you're beginning not with the community, you're beginning with the rule of God. Is that correct? Yeah, there's not just two people or two parties we ought to talk about, ruled and ruler. We have to add a third party, the divine ruler hmm. over all things, right? 
And uh, I like the way O'Donovan puts it when he says we have to we have to push back the horizons of our political conceptuality. Yeah, it's kind of that's kind of a mouthful, but it, it's just a way of saying we have to open up the skies and, and and look into the heavens and see. Okay, this all starts with God. So politics in your paradigm, which which I'll go ahead and let my card show and say that I, I agree with with Jonathan's take on this is politics is really about ordering all of our life in a given society in conjunction and in reference to the rule of God and what the rule of God means for for each of us as image bearers and how we reflect God's image in a in a, in a given community. Is that fair to say as well? Yeah, that's, that's a very refined way of speaking. Most people aren't going to speak that way. Uh, political Even if you wanted the secular political scientists, political theologians, political scientists, to go to the feminists, go to the communitarians, go to the minority rights theorists, they too will acknowledge that there's a broad way and a narrow way to talk about politics. Mm-hmm. Narrowly, politics is what we all think it is, public square, right? Yeah. Governments, courts, Congress, etc. Broadly, and this is where your feminist theorists and your minority rights theorists and your postmodern theorists and so forth are really helpful. They stop and look and say, hey, look, uh, the quote-unquote political space, the public square space, is what it is because somebody has made a decision about that's what we're going to let into the public square, mm-hmm. square, right? And that's a political decision. And in other words, they all say, broadly speaking, yes, all of life is political. Now, we come along as Christian theologians, as Bible readers and believers, and say, yeah, there's something to that. It, it starts not just with the white man's power assertion, though that's a problem. It actually starts with God and what mm-hmm. God says in his word about how government should govern, how people should live lives together, uh, how churches should be ordered, and so forth. So I've already alluded to this, but you've written a book called Political Church. And so this is a, this is a question of low-hanging fruit, but... I want us to really tease this out as we begin this conversation, is, is the church political? No. If you're asking whether the church should be nationalistic, tied to a nation, or partisan, tied to a party, and therefore should the church offer policy solutions to the affairs of the day or push particular candidates as if those things lay within the church's competence or authority, that's not what I'm saying. Is the church political? Yes, three ways. One, generically, metaphorically, it's political because our church membership is ordered to our lives. Mm-hmm. But again, I'm just speaking about using the word metaphorically, like I speak against like university politics or business politics. But second, more profoundly and literally, I would say we speak on behalf of the king who rules the nations and their rulers. We go out into the streets and we say, Oh, nations of the earth, Jesus is your king. Amen. Repent. His judgment is coming. Believe. So so think of Jonah's preaching in Nineveh, calling the Ninevites to turn from their wickedness and to repent. Tell me, is, is that political speech or not? You know, it, I, I don't know how it's not. Yeah. And, and then third, I would say our lives together as local churches should model the righteous and just lives of the nations. We're to be model political communities. We're to be embassies of heaven, sh- showing the nations how to live. So, So those three ways... Yeah, I would say the church is political. So you mentioned something that I want to actually kind of get to right now, and in, in this this nature of of the church and this question of ecclesiology. And if Nine Marks is known for anything, that's the organization you work for. Uh, it's known for their emphasis on Baptist ecclesiology, and and for us to kind of move forward in this conversation in terms of the framework we're going to be discussing, we want to really kind of 
get this understanding of what a Baptist ecclesiology is. And so, Jonathan, what would you say is a Baptist ecclesiology, and why do you think that a Baptist ecclesiology is the most biblical form of church government? Yeah, sure. Well, it's, it's three things. It's, it's independent, it's congregational, and it's baptistic, okay? Independent, it's self-governing. It's, it's not under the authority of a presbytery or a bishopric. Uh, each congregation is independent or autonomous. That's not to say it's not to be interdependent, living its life together with other churches. It is. But each body makes its own final authority. Why is that the case? Well, in Matthew 18, Jesus gives final authority to the gathered assembly, which is the saying in 1 Corinthians 5 and elsewhere. A lot of people look to Acts 15 as an example of a larger structure, some type of council that has authority over. I, I don't think that's what the passage is teaching. We can get on the weeds of that if you want, but there it is. So number one, it's independent. Number two, it's congregational. That the, okay, so who's the final authority inside of the church? Is it leaders, the pastors, the shepherds, elders, or is it the whole church? Well, I believe elders lead. I believe that elders teach and give oversight, but I believe the final authority belongs to the whole congregation. Again, Matthew 18, 1 Corinthians 5. And this isn't just a proof text thing, Andrew. This is, I think this is very much a gospel thing. I think this is a property of the priesthood of all believers. Mm-hmm. I think every believer is called to guard the who and the what of God of the gospel, mm-hmm. such that if if your church leaders are preaching a wrong gospel, Galatians one, Paul says, even if I, an apostle or an angel from heaven, come to you with a different gospel, let him be anathema. In other words, I can't play the apostle card. Even can't even play the angel card. No, you congregations, churches of God, you are to guard the gospel, and and, and for that reason. As I understand it from Scripture, the congregation has final authority. You know, a quick illustration of this is when the City Church of San Francisco a few years ago came out and said, hey, uh, we now, the elders came out, rather, and said, it's a Presbyterian church, said we, uh, the elders, and therefore the church, uh, believe in, um, are going to be an affirming church, mm-hmm. uh, that homosexual homosexuality is within God's will. Well, what, what choice did the members have at that point? Well, within the system, they could leave, but inside the system, they had no choice. Yeah, And those elders were determining what that church believes. I, I think that's not only wrong, I think it's unbiblical. And then third, baptistic, meaning uh, y- your church consists of believers, not believers and their children. And we don't baptize babies. So yeah, I think, I think that's the most biblical. So I, I want to start turning to this question of religious liberty, which uh, you and I have, have spoken at length about. We ultimately end up, I think, at the same place using some different language, which we'll talk about. But one of the things I want to tease out before we kind of get to religious liberty proper is the importance of Baptist ecclesiology to this question of religious liberty. So there's something intrinsic to Baptist ecclesiology that led the early Baptists to be the first champions of religious liberty, uh, especially in a North American context. And Jonathan, I'd love to kind of get your thoughts on what is it in the DNA of Baptist ecclesiology that you think posits or demands or brings forth a doctrine of religious liberty. So connect those two dots for us. Yeah, sure. It's both both religious liberty and it's also separation of church and state. Uh, I think the the first thing to focus on is is believer baptism versus infant baptism, right? Mm -hmm. You cannot have—it is impossible to have an established church— from a Baptistic 
perspective. Mm-hmm. You can have an established church from a pedo baptist perspective. You don't have to, but you can. It makes it possible, and in certain contexts, even lightly. So what pedo baptism does, baptizing my babies, allows for the boundaries of the church and the boundaries of the state to be almost coterminous. Mm-hmm. You might have immigrants and whatnot, but otherwise it's going to be coterminous. Suppose I'm the king of Spain, I decided that the Pope is right, and uh, and I want to make, and I feel obligated under God to make Roman Catholicism the nation's religion. How do I do that? Well, it's easy. I, I baptize every new border with, newborn within my borders into the church. Voila, we have Catholic Spain. The same for King of England. I decide, oh, well, let's all be Anglican. We'll baptize all the babies. Voila, Anglican England, right? Now, Baptists can't do that uh, because we don't believe baptizing a baby makes them anything. It just means they get wet, right? As, as such, the borders of the nation and the borders of the church, by definition, in the Baptist conception, will never be determinous. I think that's the first thing to understand. The second is this. Uh, we believe in justification by faith alone through grace alone. Now, that's not a Baptist idea. It's a Protestant idea. But it's one that makes religious coercion impossible. We know it's ineffectual. So there's a sense in which every Protestant uh, should believe in and historically should have affirmed the separation of church and state and should affirm religious freedom. The Baptists are, and, and other, other denominations eventually figured that out. The Presbyterians and Anglicans didn't figure that out right away, but with a little Baptist influence, so they might deny this, they eventually <laughs> figured that out, based simply on sola fide, right? Yeah. Uh, but I think Baptists in that regard are the ones who are most consistent in saying, yeah, we cannot have an established church, ergo, we cannot, we cannot coerce religion, and um, uh, must have some conception, some doctrine of religious tolerance or religious freedom. You cannot put a sword to somebody's throat Charlemagne, and say, be a Christian. That doesn't work. Muslims do that. Christians should not. You, you know, in your book, Political Church, which again, I want to recommend every person pick up, there's a line in there, and I'm, I'm going to butcher the quote, so forgive me, uh, where you basically uh, hint at a lot of the heightened secularism and uh, a dying church in Western Europe, particularly because of the widespread practice of infant baptism uh, in kind of this historic Christendom model. Could you kind of could you <laughs> yeah. tease out for us how are you in your framework kind of drawing the, the, the connection between the state of European Christianity today to ancient baptismal practices from medieval Christendom? Yeah, sure. First, let's, you know, just for, for the record, I love my Presbyterian and Anglican brothers and sisters. Sure, we, we probably so, need to provide them a trigger warning at this podcast. No, no, that's right. <laughs> we're one in the gospel, okay? But we, we differ we differ on some of these ecclesiological and, and covenantal and baptistic matters, okay? So we, we can have conversations like adults and agree to disagree on some of these things and sure. affirm each other in the gospel. But let me go ahead and proceed and, and explain why, yeah, I think, I think pedo-baptism is, is very problematic. And, and that's true whether you're talking about a... a uh, a concept, a Roman Catholic concept of pedo-baptism, where, you know, the, the baptism, as it were, uh, saves me, or, or even a Protestant conception, which is, you know, a Presbyterian conception, which is nearly as, as problematic. It, it doesn't mean to do that, but it does introduce me to a quote-unquote covenant community. Um, but to answer your question, Andrew, okay, I mean, 
what what believe what pale baptism does is is it's like a hose of muddy water that you're plugging into your pool, right? So you got muddy water feeding into your pool. What's going to happen to that pool? What's going to get dirty? What's what's the mud? Well, the mud is non-Christians or let's say nominal Christians. So you have a whole nation, and you're saying to this whole nation, "Hey, y'all are Christians now. By by birth, we have made you all Christian. We've baptized you into the church." Well, are they really Christians? Some might be. Many, many of them are not. What does that mean? It means I have quote unquote Christian Europe that isn't actually Christian, right? It's 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 uh, some Christians, but it's 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 uh, it's it's many nominal and non Christians, right? But I'm I, I, I'm misidentifying the same. So the, the problem with with Constantinianism, the problem with Christendom as, as we think of it isn't a matter of legislating morality. That's how people want to talk about it today. You, you can't help but legislate morality. Every every law you you pass it has a moral basis, a worldview basis, even I would say a religious basis. That, that's that's not the problem with Constantinianism. The, one of the main problems, not the only one of the main problems is this confusion between church membership and national citizenship. Again, when I make those two things coterminous through infant baptism and through a couple of other things. When I make those things overlapping, I can't help but have a very muddy pool in which uh, both church and state at that point are going to be confusing their own responsibilities. And that's that's highly problematic. So, Am I, am I answering the question you asked? Yeah, no, definitely. That's Yes, you are, for sure. So I, I want to get into the direct question of religious liberty. Um, and... You in your book, you know, you give me and, and some of my uh, enlightenment-friendly Baptist friends uh, some heart palpitations when the, the way that you talk about religious liberty, because you you talk about how religious liberty, as it's popularly conceived of in the Western context, it, it's kind of uh, it's it's written the seeds uh, of its own destruction. It can, yeah, uh, it can unravel based on the principle itself. So. Uh, again, I know where you're going ultimately with religious liberty, but I think you have an interesting critique that uh, a lot of us in the West, and Western Christians in particular, uh, should hear as far as viewing religious liberty not primarily through liberal democratic lenses, but through a much more, I would say, biblical lens as far as the nature of man, the nature of the heart, and what happens when the heart is free to invent any number of uh, of sins on a on a social level? So, if you would tease out your concerns with kind of the modern construals of religious liberty. Yeah, sure. So first, let me affirm religious liberty, or I prefer the term tolerance, sure. biblically. But, but but yeah, you're you're exactly right. I, I do think there's a problem with the way we often think and talk about it in the American tradition. But let me let me put it like this. Okay, here we are in the public square. I'm a I'm a I'm a Baptist. You're an Anglican. You're a uh, you're a, a somebody else is a deist. Uh, somebody else is a Jew, and we're all trying to figure out. Okay, well, I want to practice my religion. You want to practice your religion. Uh, how can we protect one another's religious rights? Um, it seems like it's not sufficient for me to say, well, look, God says we can't coerce one another's consciences because the deist or the atheist at that point says, well, I, I don't believe in God, mm-hmm. and so then I think. Okay, fine. Let me let me see if I can find a common ground argument, an argument that appeals to you on your terms, 
for respecting my religious liberty, and I'll try to do the same for you. I know, conscience. I don't want you to coerce my conscience. You don't want me to coerce your conscience. Let's agree on the grounds of the free conscience, not on the grounds of what the Bible says. Let's agree on the grounds of free conscience to not impose our views on religious views on one another's conscience. Deal? Okay, deal. So we, we shake hands. And conscience, this, this, uh, this neutral, religiously quote-unquote neutral idea of conscience becomes the ground for protecting one another's religious liberty. Mm-hmm. Does that work? Well, it works so long as what my religion requires of me and your religion requires of you doesn't contradict one another. Right. As soon as what my religion requires and your religion requires are deeply at odds, well, what then? Well, at that point, we can no longer afford to be neutral. Instead, I'm going to do what I, I can to get the most votes in the House of, uh, or in, in, in Congress, and, and you're going to do what you're, do what you can to get the most votes in, in the Supreme Court to basically win the day. Mm-hmm. And the quote-unquote guy, the, 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 the ruse of religious liberty at that point is, is, is exposed to be what it is just a convenient temporary compromise, to put it in the best terms. And so what we have is in a virtuous society, like, like America, say, quote-unquote, in the uh, virtuous in the, in, the, in the 18th century, uh, unless you're a minority or, or perhaps a woman, sure. uh, in, in a quote-unquote virtuous society like that, we, our religions are close enough, our virtues are close enough that we don't have cultural wars. Mm-hmm. Well, let 200, pa- 200 years pass, and let my Christianity and your pagan religion drift further and further apart, and suddenly we're going to discover, hey, what my conscience is requiring and what your conscience is requiring are, in fact, pretty different things. And so the Supreme Court comes along in 1992 and says men and women of good conscience can disagree on abortion. Well, does that mean I need to respect your right to abortion on the grounds of conscience, that is to say, on the grounds of religious freedom? Not if it offends your conscience. Well, it offends my conscience, exactly. So so that's where the whole thing is starting to unravel. And where I would say, look, uh, religious freedom on a quote-unquote objective, neutral, universal standpoint, it doesn't exist. I am coming in, and I'm arguing for this doctrine based on my own sectarian Christian views. Mm -hmm. You're coming in based on your own religious, anti-religious, whatever, sectarian views. Let's just be honest about that fact. Right, and so that's that's why I think this this doctrine of religious religious liberty, as we formulate it, is. Uh, in many ways, imperiled or at risk today. Biblically, uh, I would say a couple of things. One, God doesn't give us the right to coerce another's conscience, mm-hmm. number one. Uh, number two, God gives uh, religious authority to, or, 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 or doctrinal and church membership authority to the church, not to the state. Number three, I would say nowhere are we authorized to, to prosecute crimes against God. So you're blasphemy. There's nothing in Scripture that says, I have the authority to prosecute that. Your false religion, I don't have the authority to prosecute that. So, in other words, Andrew, I can give you very biblical and Christian reasons for affirming religious freedom. Mm-hmm. Or religious, I prefer, as I said, tolerance. What's harder is when atheist, Christian, Muslim, Hindu, agnostic get together and say, hey, let's, let's, let's find a basis that we can all agree upon. And you're saying that there can be agreements, but what is knitting those agreements together are probably going to be provisional at best until there becomes widespread, really divergent disagreement. That's exactly right. At best, it's going to be a a temporary holding station. What I Uh, I really 
like about your view on religious liberty, even, even though I would quibble with the idea of religious tolerance, even though I know what, you're, what you mean by that versus how it's been used in, in times past, what I like about your idea is this notion that there is no sanitized, neutral public square. There's always uh, a, a contestability component that in every single age, in every single generation, there is always dialogue, conversation, and competition happening in the town square where various ideologies and religions are competing to gain adherents and followers. And so I think it does provide, or it, it offsets this kind of just cheerily optimistic view that um, we can just agree to disagree. Well, sometimes we can't just agree to disagree because we disagree over I mean, matters of what you and I would call good and evil. Um, that doesn't mean that we want to go ahead and vanquish and penalize and punish every single evildoer, but it's to acknowledge that there is this debate at the heart of society, and we cannot just alleviate and remove that debate in this era of, of history. And that's where I think, too, this kind of eschatological horizon becomes really, really important because you're, you're saying in your framework, if I hear you properly, is this debate and this contestability is, is normative in this age. And so we as Christians yeah. don't have the ability to kind of bring that debate and to bring that contestability to an end. You and yeah. I would both say, though, that religious liberty and freedom of conscience are not eternal goods, and they're going to come to an end when the reign of Christ is enacted in full. Yeah, I would just say, think, think of uh, the, I think it was Senator Feinstein, I'm not sure, responding to the, uh, on the Senate Judiciary Committee, responding to the nominee from, of, of a Roman Catholic judge. And Feinstein said uh, she was concerned about this particular nominee because, quote-unquote, your dogma lives loud within you. Do you, remember, do you remember that quote? I do, yeah. She, she was trying to say, you know, look, your Roman Catholic Church is, is Views your dogma, your religious dogma is is going to overly influence the way you rule on the court. And I wanted to respond to Feinstein by saying, "Does your dogma not live loudly within you? Right. I mean, do you think you're somehow dogma less neutral? Not a chance." Um, and you know, you've heard me you've heard me use the quote about the public square is is, is the battleground of gods. Mm -hmm. I'm there on behalf of my gods, and you're you're there on behalf of yours. You know, I mean, the whole, the whole, the whole American experiment was was predicated on this idea that we can come together and, and and form a society, even though we have different gods, based on certain universal principles like rights, equality, freedom. Uh, the, the question is, who gets to define rights, equality, freedom? So the advocates and opponents of Jim Crow's separate but equal laws all affirm something called equality, but mm -hmm. clearly they meant different things by the word. Yeah. You know, the pro-life and pro-choice both agree on something called freedom, but clearly disagree on whether a, freedom, a woman has freedom to terminate her pregnancy. Uh, conservative and progressives agree that gays and lesbians possess a right to marriage, but they disagree profoundly on whether there's a right to marry someone of the same sex. In other words, Andrew, hiding inside those three different supposedly neutral values, rights, freedom, equality, mm -hmm. hiding inside of them is somebody's gods, just like Greek soldiers hiding inside of a Trojan horse. Right? Uh, so... I affirm rights, equality, freedom, mm -hmm. but I can't help but affirm them from my own sectarian biblical perspective, which is going to inform what I say our rights are, what freedom is, what equality is. And the culture wars begin 
with my view of rights, informed by my gods, and your view of rights, informed by your gods, come into conflict. That's so well said. Very well said. Okay, so I want to get a practical question that I wrestle with all the time. In your view, would it be appropriate for a government to have a Christian preamble to its constitution? By Christian, if you're saying, does it name the name of Jesus? I think probably not, at least not a democratic government. Okay. Um, one that sort of le- supposedly represents the, the people's opinions, perspectives. Uh, I mean, I suppose if a king came out and said, look, I'm a Christian and I'm going to rule according to Christian principles, uh, uh, whatever, I, I would need to nuance that more. But but as we understand the, a Christian constitution, we the people, U.S. Constitution, no, I don't think it should, because the state has not been given the authority of the keys. Mm-hmm. It has the authority of the sword. Um, the church is the one with the authority of the keys, to bound and loose in heaven. That is to say, to render judgment on the who and the what of the gospel, uh, to attach Jesus' name to things. The, the way I sometimes put it is the state has the authority to build platforms for our lives. The church has the authority to hang signs saying, this is a Christian, this is the gospel, mm-hmm. right? So the church walks around hanging signs on things, right church, wrong church, right gospel, wrong gospel, Christian, not a Christian. That's what the church's job is to do. That's not the state's job. This goes back to our separation of church and state. This goes back to what we were talking about with religious freedom. So in that sense, for the state uh, to name Jesus, uh, yeah, I, I don't think it has the authority to do that. And what, what is it going to do? It's, it's going to turn the nation, as it were, into a, 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 every citizen into a kind of hypocrite, affirming something that they don't really affirm. So I'm going to play, I, I agree with you, let's be clear on that. Uh, I want to play devil's advocate. So what do you say to the individual that says, well, listen, society and government needs to be bound by a common morality in order for there to be a coherent, meaningful system of justice and, and the possibility of, their, of the polity enduring for a sustainable future. So you're saying that you do not want to put Christ at the center of our legal system where we can, we can ground a system of justice on the clear principles derived from the Bible? Uh, I would say that's not quite what I'm doing. Uh, I would say, A, yes, certainly we need coherent, right, good morality and justice determining our laws, number one. Number two, I I think we get those from the Bible, right? Uh, There's God's justice, and then there's justice. Those are your two options. Justice is God defines it, and anti-justice. Uh, so, so yes, I'm going to take my principles of justice and morality very much from Scripture. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm going to go into the public square, and I'm going to make arguments for them. I might make common ground arguments, that is to say, appeal to you on your terms. Yeah. Or I might make just, frankly, openly sectarian arguments. On the whole, in a democratic society, I'm probably going to make more common ground arguments. Yeah. Uh, I, I, can, I can make three, I would say there's three different kinds of common ground arguments I might make. Call it, call it the Luther approach, the MLK approach, and the sociologist approach. The Luther approach, appeal to conscience. That might work some. Uh, the, the MLK approach, appeal to certain natural law, universal principles that might work or not. The sociologist approach, hey look, statistics show that, hmm. you know, marriage is good for children. 
those are common ground arguments. I'll make happily make those in the public square and often make those kind of common ground. But who, what am I arguing for? I'm arguing for justice as I understand it in the Bible. Mm-hmm. But I also, from time to time, might make a fourth kind of argument, call it a Polycarp approach. Uh, Polycarp saying to the a Roman, uh, the, the, the Roman, not centurion, but whatever, in, this, in, the, in the arena, on behalf of Jesus, I'm, I'm not, I'm not going to deny my Jesus. He's, he's done good to me for 86 years, mm-hmm. and, and he threatens us both with a fire of judgment that's greater than anything that you can threaten me with. In other words, Polycarp is extremely explicit about the basis of coming judgment. Mm-hmm. And I think there is a time and a place for Christians to walk into the public square with Polycarp arguments. That's uh, well would said. We, would we only... Now, now they're costly. Uh, look what happened to Polycarp. Yeah. He was, was burned at the stake. But when we only make common ground arguments, um, what we effectively do is is we undermine. We, well, we, first we affirm people that authority rests with them. When it doesn't, it rests with God. And two, we we undermine the basis for all of our beliefs. Right, that, that Jesus is King over all, and all are called to submit, repent, and believe. So, okay, but back to your question. No, I'm not. I'm not going to go there and be explicit in saying you need to adopt a constitution that says you affirm Jesus when I know you don't affirm Jesus. Mm-hmm. That's just to make you a hypocrite. Nonetheless, I do want to pass laws on murder and stealing and property rights and whatever else, various you know, caring measures to care for the poor, based on these biblical principles because I think they're true, and I think they're true not just for me as Christian, but true for humanity. Uh, think, of, think, of, uh, think of Proverbs 8, where wisdom calls aloud in the streets and, and calls out to the kings. I'm quickly trying to turn there. Anyhow, it, Proverbs 8 says that, by me, wisdom, by me, princes rule and govern. And do, I'm sorry, this is chapter 9. Oh, no, it's chapter 8. I was right. Uh, verse 16. By me, princes lead and do nobles and all righteous judges. Um, by me, kings reign and rulers enact just law. I, I don't care if we're talking about uh, the communist government of China, Vladimir Putin, Theresa May in Britain, uh, or, 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 you know, uh, the, the Supreme Court of the United States, or, or your local school board. Mm-hmm. For all of those, by me, wisdom, that's the wisdom of God, kings reign, and rulers enact just law. By me, princes lead, and nobles and righteous judges. So, wh- what does that mean we should be in the public square? I, I would say we should be, uh, the label I give to it is, is principal pragmatists. Mm. We have some, certain principles of justice and righteousness and wisdom that we're trying to teach, but we, pragmatists, in how we go into the public square. Does the MLK natural law approach win the argument? Does the sociologist approach? Does the Luther conscience-driven common ground approach? Or does the polycarp approach? I don't care. Use whatever works. Use whatever wins the debate. Those are four great paradigms. I had not thought of it like that, but that, that's very well said. I, I want to take this framework that you've just developed. I don't know if you've developed that on the fly or you've you've composed this somewhere, but that was... Excellent. 
It's in my it's in my upcoming book called How the Nations Rage: Rethinking Faith and Politics for a Divided Age, out this April. Oh, fantastic! April well, we will look forward to that for sure. Let's apply this to a specific public policy issue. Uh, yeah. Let's imagine you have a, a legislator who is a Christian. Uh, the legislature is debating whether to pass a law uh, approving uh, or, or legalizing a physician-assisted suicide. So okay. w- when the legislator is giving a floor speech explaining his position on the matter, uh, several questions. First, what does he say as both a Christian and as a legislator? And is he wrong to base his decision on his Christian faith? So he's opposing He's opposing. He's opposing the, the legalizing of physician-assisted okay, suicide. Okay, okay. Is he? Uh, your second question first. Is he wrong to base his premise on a Christian faith? Absolutely not. I would say he'd be sinning to do otherwise. Uh, I, I would say he'd be sinning to adopt some other god's view of justice and righteousness and morality, mm-hmm. and base his decisions on some other god's view. He. he there is one god. Um, and 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 it's he who defines justice, he who defines righteousness. So that's your second question. Your first one: How does he make the argument? Well, that's a that's a pragmatic question. That's a wisdom based question. Mm-hmm. And there, if his, if his goal is justice, if his goal is righteousness and and the preventing of of murder, which which I, I take physician assisted suicide to be, uh, well, then what he wants to do is make the best argument in light of his circumstances. If he knows a Luther approach is going to work, appeals to people's conscience, or if he knows a, 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 a statistics-driven sociologist approach, or if an MLK, you know, natural law approach is going to work, well, then use those, by all means. If he feels like, for some reason, those are just going to fall on deaf ears, yeah, he might pull out the polycock approach and will warn them of coming judgment, hmm. warn them of, of, of something very severe. Uh, but the point is, that that's what that is, Andrew, is political strategy. Yeah. And polit- political strategy is very much a wisdom-driven matter. Uh, if, if you're asking me, the, I, I, th- I think the, the key verse in the Bible, what's the political philosophy of the Bible? I, I'll give you one verse, 1 Kings 3.28. And the people were amazed that God had given wisdom to Solomon to do justice. Wisdom to do justice. There it is. And you know the context. You have the two prostitutes both saying, it's my baby. No, it's my baby. He's like, okay, bring a sword, cut it in half. And the mother's like, no, 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 give it to her. Well, he had a just goal in mind, right? Preserve the life and and give it to the mom. But he used strategy. He used wisdom to accomplish his ends. There's your principled pragmatism. Your principled justice, your pragmatism. Wisdom to do justice. So your, your legislature, that legislator, that, that's what he needs to do. Thank you, Jonathan. That was very well said. I appreciate that. I want to kind of turn and conclude uh, and ask you some uh, rapid-fire kind of fun questions for listeners to, uh, to, to get to know you a little bit better. Uh, okay, so here we go. Top three Desert Island movies. Uh, Lord of the Rings 1, 2, 3. Oh, man, that's a cop-out. No, listen, listen. I wrote my dissertation watching those three over and over and over. <laughs> <laughs> so it's like, it's like midnight and I'm falling asleep and I need to stay awake. So I put it on in the background. Andrew, I must've watched it 20 times, 30 times, all three of them. So it's clearly my desert island movies. That's great. That's great. Okay. Top three desert island books. And you can't say the Bible. Uh, your book on transgenderism. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. So kind. 
Um, I mean, Calvin's Institutes, not because I agree with every dot and tittle of it, the jot and tittle of it, but it's worshipful theology, and I, I think that would be useful as long. Um, probably a good novel. Okay. Uh, maybe Les Mis. Oh, brought good. me to tears. And then, of course, uh, a book on how to build a boat. <laughs> and and uh, Castaway. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> that's a movie, though. Um, that's right. Okay, so what's a recent purchase you've made that has really revolutionized uh, an area of your life? I bought a convertible. Oh. You yeah, bought a convertible? Huh? What, what, what type of convertible is this? Oh, it's a 2007 Volvo. So it looks fancier than it actually is. Uh, it's revolutioned my, revolutionized my life for at least six months of the year because I look forward to going out and driving somewhere. Like, yes, honey, I'll go to the store. <laughs> That's <laughs> awesome. It is <laughs> awesome. awesome. Okay, favorite Christian writer? Andrew Walker. Again, you, you're just so kind. Uh, I don't. I don't have a good answer here. Uh, I mean, I enjoy a lot of the generic stuff everybody else does in terms of the content, okay. uh, Carson or Keller or Beale or Dever or uh, Wellam Gentry. Just the content of what they say. I, I like if, if we can call. I, I know he would not be called a Christian writer, but kind of writing right now in political space. I appreciate some of what David French says. I like yeah. his stuff. He's very good. Uh, again, I don't know if I'm allowed to call him a Christian writer or not. Um, uh, in terms of like, yeah, I'll stop there. I, I don't have any good answers to that okay. question. Okay. What are some? Uh, what are some of your hobbies? Uh, I'm always intimidated by this question because I never have interesting answers. I'm an uninteresting person. I like to ride my uh, so bike riding, daddy daughter dates. Uh, on the nerd side, Legos. Okay. Uh, I have these like towns, these these uh, towns of Legos that I, I I build with my daughter's son. It's a lot of fun. That's awesome. Uh, any useless talents? <laughs> um, the, being a theologian, right? Uh, well, I hope that's not useless. <laughs> but, but thank you for the affirmation. <laughs> When I, when I was seven or eight, I learned to roar like a cougar. Okay. Well, I, I, uh, I'll leave it to you to whether you want to do that on the air or not. So. Well, do you want to, do you want to try? Oh, sure. Why not? Okay. Let's, let's see. I, I don't know if this is going to work, but. <laughs> <laughs> if you were to ask me. If if I woke up today thinking that I would have Jonathan Lehman roaring like a tiger on my uh, on my podcast, I I would not have answered yes. But by yeah, golly, yeah. I've heard it now. Uh, where would you go in a time machine? I've just been fascinated by the '60s. It seemed like such a tragic turning point in mm. American life. I, I'd I'd be curious to, in a Forrest Gump sort of way, go back and trace all that. Maybe start in the '50s and then flow into the 60s just to watch all of that. Okay. Uh, if you could meet anyone through history, who would it be? Uh, no interesting answers, generic answers. King David, what was that guy like? Uh, yeah. Paul. Augustine? Yeah. I mean, brilliant theologian on the one hand, but, it, but his confessions. Yeah. You know, a very introspective, interesting person to talk to, and, I would think. And uh, lived at such an interesting time as well. 
Oh, I know. Goodness gracious. And how, how that would, would force us to not take so many things for granted in our modern-day Christianity, looking at it in his context. Right. So right. I'll go with Augustine. Okay, last question. If you won $10 million in the lottery and had 30 seconds to decide what you would do with it, what would you do? Give it the ERLC. Man, your answers are just out of this world. Buy another convertible. <laughs> this time in 2008, probably. Yeah, that's right. That's right. That's awesome. Um, I would set my daughters up for college. I would buy a slightly bigger house because we're very cramped right now. I would like to give a lot of it away to Nine Marks. Yeah. And the RLC and other organizations like that that I think are doing good work. Uh, okay. Jonathan Lehman, I want to thank you for taking time out of a very busy schedule and apparently a writing schedule uh, today to chat with us. Uh, so thank you very much. Brother, great to talk to you. Thank you for the time. Okay. Good questions, as always. Thank you so much. Uh, again, thanks for joining us on this most latest edition of Counter Moves. We'll look forward to seeing you next month. Thank you. Thank you.